Uh, so over the last three weeks, we've examined this, uh, started to examine this weighty book of Colossians, and we've seen, haven't we, that the, the grace of Christ in granting us a new and real, real ID as saints. And Paul says today in chapter 2, verse 6, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of all that we've heard about grace and identity, so walk in him. To walk is to act. It is a summary of the letter so far. It's the central point that Paul keeps making over and over again, that identity and activity go hand in hand. They go together. And if you have it open in front of you in verse 9 of chapter 2, you start to see the full significance of this identity and activity. Verse 9, for in him... The full deity, the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Well, if the fullness of God fills Christ, and you are filled with the fullness of Christ, then then you've been filled with God, and your identity is now fully God's. Your identity is exactly like his, and I think Paul is saying if your identity is God's, then should not your activity be God's as well? Now, I'm aware when we start to talk like this in church, when we have a sermon on Christian behavior, when we start to talk about our walk with God and our activity and our actions, people start to shuffle a bit on the pews and feel uncomfortable. Uh, We like identity sermons a lot more, don't we? Those sermons that say, hey, you know, grace... It's entirely free, and salvation is a yes or a no kind of a thing. And if you're a yes person, you feel great. And if you're a no person, why not become a yes person? Then you'll feel great. Easy. We love those ones. When it's an activity sermon and we start to talk about Christian behavior and ethics and morality and the things we do, we feel a bit more uncomfortable, don't we? We probably start to look at the things we do and we realize that there's so many things to do that we're not doing enough. Maybe we're not doing enough things right. Or maybe we're doing too many things wrong. And we don't want to think about it very much. The reason why I do invite you to have the lively word of God open before you is because every single word of Scripture is carefully chosen to stop you from being a heretic. And if you look carefully at this scripture, you see how carefully chosen they are. Verse 6 says, Therefore, in light of grace, as you received, reception is by grace, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You received him by grace. So, walk by grace, then, is what he is saying. Let your activity be empowered by grace. And if you mess up, don't give up. Look up. Get up and repent. We're always going to find it far more encouraging and far more useful instead of of a hectoring, lecturing, berating, putting people down kind of a sermon, if instead we call them up. And so I think Paul is saying here, as we start to address Christian behavior, Live out who you already are. 
let your activity flow from your identity. That's already settled in Christ. Four words to do with that now. Paul has no problem mixing metaphors and uh, making the same point four ways. So we've got four here for the same thing, four facets of this idea. Rooted, built up, established, abounding. Here we go, rooted, uh, like a tree. If you're rooted or grounded, you're enabled to grow up. And just as the quality of a, a root system impacts the life of a tree, in the same way, the quality of a faith system impacts the life of a believer. Uh, and maybe uh, you've seen one of those bonsai trees, and the growth has been stunted because the root ball has been kept small in a pot. Or maybe you've been down to the dog park and you've seen one of those huge trees that's just fallen over and the root ball is exposed and in the air and it was shallow and, and inadequate and that's why the tree collapsed. If you are not attached or rooted or grounded in Christ Jesus himself and you start to seek the activity of Christ Jesus without the identity of Christ Jesus, then you won't grow very big. And if you do grow up somehow with your own activity without the identity and the roots, it's only a matter of time before you collapse, before some storm of life blows through and you fall over and quite likely you'll land on someone else and take them out with you. Activity without identity always causes damage. So I spent some time this week researching the subject of kelp. Uh, spiritual kelp, I guess. Seaweed, I was thinking of. Kelp has no root system. You maybe know this. Kelp is not a plant. It's actually technically algae. And in every time I've preached this, there's been a biologist who's gone, hmm. You know. <laughs> kelp floats. It has something underneath it. It doesn't have roots. It has something that dangles down underneath it called a holdfast, which is kind of strange, a holdfast. Um, it's ironic because it doesn't hold fast to anything. It's just a blob that dangles underneath and floats around, a cluster of, of stuff. And the, the whole thing, the whole weed, the plant and the substructure, is, is, a, is a drift. And it floats around and it moves around with the tide and passing ships and the currents and whatever goes on, the whole thing moves about. And I think the temptation for us as Christians is to be spiritual kelp. We talk, don't we, about getting centered I'm just going to get centered, you know. Hey, man, great idea. But if you're centered on yourself, then you're living in reference to yourself and you're only attached to yourself, you will be blown around by all of the tides and the currents like a piece of spiritual kelp. The latest political opinion will drift through. The latest movement will wash over you. And you'll become tribal and you'll become judgmental. They're the bad guys. I'm the good guy. People like me are in the right camp. And you'll drift around. You'll become adrift from the gospel if you only live by reference to yourself. None of that can happen if instead of being rooted on yourself... You are rooted in Christ, because to be rooted in Christ is to be rooted in grace. Those who are attached to him are the most gracious of all as they grow up. The worst thing, I think, that can happen to a church is when a church starts to do some activity without the identity, 
And, and even worse still, when the church like that starts to have some success, when it starts to clean up its act itself, when it starts to behave right itself and starts to set rules about what right behavior looks like. Because when a church is able to sort of do that, often what it does is it looks around at all those out there and it says, well, if we can do it, why can't they? And it becomes judgmental. When we center on ourselves, we become the only reference point of what's right and wrong, and we start to become judgmental instead of filled with grace. The church that lives that way will not last, praise God. It becomes the yardstick by which everyone else is judged. It gets a reputation, and the people avoid us like the plague. Be rooted in Christ. Be rooted in grace. Let every discussion of activity flow from a discussion of identity just as it does in this book of Colossians. It was by grace that you were saved. Now by grace we behave. Second metaphor, built up. Uh, Maybe you're not a horticulturalist or um, a, a marine biologist. Maybe you're an architect or an engineer So let's ditch the organic image and go for a structural one now, uh, that of a building. Uh, As people build up their lives, picture a building, uh, and they reach some degree of success in their lives, I I found that they often say to me, even though they've achieved quite a lot, they still feel as though something is somehow missing. And uh, they say, you know, I've got the right house, Alex. I've got the right car. I've got the right job. My family is good. I've got the right career and all the certificates and everything and the friends. And it's, it's all good. But they sometimes say to me that they, they still feel dissatisfied. And I start to ask them about their faith. What we find is that they do believe in Jesus. They probably wouldn't be talking to me if they didn't. And Christ is in their life somewhere. It's just that they've not built their life on him as Lord. He's not the foundation of it. Christ is just another part of the superstructure, maybe a room. Maybe Christ is is in the attic of your building, looking wistfully out of the window. Maybe Christ is a decoration or an oil painting hanging on a wall somewhere or an ornament, but not the foundation. Believing in Jesus isn't what's in view here. It's building on Jesus that is in view. Let me ask you, is Jesus so foundational to your life that if everything you had built up was demolished and taken away, your house was gone, your bank balance was drained, your health was diminishing, your public career was in tatters, you were disbarred and struck off and ashamed, and your spouse left you and your kids hated you and you were suddenly in the gutter, If all of that happened to you, could you still feel secure? Would Christ still be there if your whole life was demolished? If not, then it's time to start again and to build up from him. Established. Third image in rapid succession. Uh, we've, We've had a marine biology image. We've had a structural engineering image, now a legal image. Uh, established, it's a legal term. It means to be confirmed or made sure. Imagine the title paper to a piece of property. Maybe you've 
wanted to buy a house or a car, and if so, you'll know that it's not yours until the piece of paper is in your hand. And Paul is imagining starting work on your walk with God without being established in Christ Jesus first is as stupid as doing DIY on a house that you don't yet own or filling the tank of a car with gas that you've not yet bought. Someone else might drive off in it or move in. It's an order of operations issue for Paul here. Start with Christ, and then from there, work up. Abounding, overflowing, excelling, uh, like, a, like something spilling over, like a great big jug of wine. There's too much flowing. Activity not only flows from identity, it overflows abundantly from it. Start with Christ and see the activity catch up. Why is he talking like this? Why is he saying the same thing four different ways? Why is he laboring the point? What is going on in Colossae, the city receiving this letter that's got him so rattled and and wound up? The answer is two groups of people are around in that city threatening this new church. And both are teaching the same thing, that activity comes first. Both are saying, if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and this, and this right, then you can get right with God in the end. They were arguing, if you could just behave well enough, you could change your own ID. So Paul, he's really got his goat. He's really rattled his cage, and he is literally in a cage at this moment, in a jail cell. You can imagine him on the bars going, no! Verse 13, you who were dead, he says... In your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Guys, you weren't in need of a facelift and some tooth whitening and a bit of keep fit and one of those weird laser hair growth helmets that I'm so tempted to buy on Facebook. You were in need of a a polish and a rebrand. You were, before you met Jesus Christ, a corpse. You, You can't put a bit of lipstick on a corpse and suddenly make it alive again. Changing the, the idea of a dead thing into a live thing is impossible for the dead thing to do to itself. You don't resuscitate yourself. You need to be brought back alive by something outside of yourself. Stop trying to change your ID with your activity, will you, he says. And let's mix the metaphors again. Maybe that one's too brutal, too raw. He says, also, a record of debt stood against you. The debt record was the official note of indebtedness. And uh, when I finished law school, I had one, all of my very own. It hung over me this debt. My first job um, was not the job I wanted. I did it for a year, and it was so badly paid that I could barely cover the interest on the, on the legal loan that I'd taken out, and it depressed me. And I lived with a house in a house with two guys, and their paychecks would come through in the mail, and, and, and my debt records would come through in the same day. You know, just as they were earning money and getting ahead, I was getting further behind and I got so depressed and so down with this debt coming through the door that I, would, I wouldn't even open the envelopes. 
I would sometimes just shove them in a drawer. No need to look. I know what's in there. And um, I, I didn't want to think about it, this unpayable debt. And Paul takes that image. Maybe some of us have been there or maybe some of us are there. And Paul takes that image of this unpayable debt that hangs over us and shames us and terrifies us. And he says the cross both exposes that debt, opens up the envelope, and then having done so, eliminates it, takes it away. This, our debt, he says, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You couldn't pay it off. Someone did it for you. And maybe you've seen one of those crosses in, a, in maybe a Catholic cathedral uh, with Christ still on it, a crucifix. And maybe you've noticed above the image of Christ uh, on those crucifixes, there's, there's often some letters, I-N-R-I, nailed above the cross, uh, Latin for Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. The reason why it's there is because at the time when a criminal was crucified, often the charge against them was nailed to the cross above their head. The point was that they couldn't pay off whatever this charge was, this legal demand against them. The only way it could be removed was through death. And so as the criminal was shamed and dangled on a cross, so the record of debt was nailed to the cross above their very heads as well. And now Paul says, imagine your sins as that debt. Imagine you're falling short of God's glory as being like an unshiftable, unpayable debt of shame that you can't get rid of. And imagine whatever it is you're picturing now, taken and put above the head of Christ Jesus himself and nailed to that cross, exposed and definitively paid off by his blood. In fact, Paul says this debt has been set aside. I love the set-aside word. You never guess what it means in the original language. Up. I didn't know this when I planned the series. It's the Holy Spirit making us look far more smart than we really are. A set aside, up, aero, it means to be born up, loosed up, taken up, raised up. It means to be removed up, to be expiated fully, like a stain on the floor that's been blotted up and pulled up and lifted up by something else and drawn up and taken away such that what remains is pure and clean. This is why Paul can call you the saints, because you've been sanctified. You've been cleaned up by Christ. So in light of that, now grow up and live up. Activity always flows from identity, and identity is given by grace. Now, if the Colossian Christians only knew that, then they wouldn't be disturbed and led astray by these people who said it was the other way around. Clean yourself up and maybe you'll get right with God later. And in verse 8, Paul goes for this now. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is concerned if people start to work on the activity of Christianity without the identity of Christ, they'll get dragged away from Christ altogether. They'll get interested in, in churchiness and religiosity. Some background for you. You need to understand the background to get what he's on about here. 
At the time of writing, there were two groups of people in Colossae disturbing the fledgling Christian church. On the one hand were Judaizers who argued that you needed to keep the whole Jewish law in order to get right with God. And so they looked at the Christians and he said, this is great. You guys are really interested in God. You're so nearly there. And all you need to do to seal the deal is to adopt every aspect of the Jewish law and behave right, and then you can save yourselves. And they saw Christianity as a a stepping stone or a gateway religion to Judaism. And on the other hand, were a group of pagans, perhaps not a group, but a disparate group of people who were fascinated with mythology and powers and mysticism and knowledge and, and what we would call today self-help. And they, they argued if you take the right tincture or you say the right incantation or you parade around in the right kind of a way, if you do these things right, then you can force God or the gods to let you in. And Paul said these two groups of people, the activists who don't have the identity of Christ and are not rooted in grace, he said that they're like, they're like pirates trying to take people captive. That word captive is to plunder a ship. They're coming in and they're plundering Christians from grace, uprooting them. They operate, he says, not by grace, but according to human tradition. Without the substance of grace, people get really precious about things. If you don't have grace, then stuff becomes important to you. And there might be things that we don't even understand why we do them, and we don't even know where they come from. But if you don't start with grace, if you start with activity instead of identity, you will find that rules and religious clutter and things in church will become your God, and activity without identity will lead you astray. Uh, Someone here told me a wonderful story of a minister, and the someone was Tracy Russell, who in turn got the story from her tutor, Paul Zorr. So it's not plagiarism if you give footnotes like that. And if you like the story, give Tracy the glory, because I've robbed a really great sermon (laughs) illustration from her. Uh, In this, uh, it's a true story, minister moved into a new parish and was really enjoying his ministry there. But he, he noticed at Holy Communion each week, when it came time to serve communion, people were looking at him a bit funny. All right, and, you know, small churches, I know when you're looking at me a bit funny... And uh, it happened to this guy. He said, after a few weeks of people looking at him funny during communion, this guy came up to him and said this, you know, we really love you and we love all the things that you're doing. Uh, We're just a bit concerned that you're not quite doing communion right. Uh, And especially, we've noticed a few of us that before serving Holy Communion, you don't first turn around uh, and touch the radiator at the back of the church. Uh, Our old pastor, you see, would always... Make sure he laid his hands on the radiator before serving Holy Communion. He thought, this is really weird. I don't remember anything in the Book of Common Prayer about touching radiators before Holy Communion. Um, So he called the previous pastor and he said, what's all this? And uh, he said, ah, yes. You see, the carpet is really thick in the chancel. And uh, there's uh, a nylon thread woven through it. And uh, I would always touch something metal before serving Holy Communion to discharge myself so that I didn't give anyone a static shock. 
And um, over the years, observing this but not knowing why, the congregation had started to imbue this activity with all sorts of theological significance <laughs> when there was none. At um, the 8 o'clock service, I gave someone a static shock during communion, <laughs> which uh, I felt was the Holy Spirit making me look as stupid as I really am. <laughs> Human traditions like this, you know, just things that we do in church, they're really often just well-meaning things. And they're often meaningless or a very low meaning. They're often quite harmless. And, you know, the Elizabethan compromise, we don't wish to make windows into men's souls. If there's a practice that you do that I don't do, but it helps you in your walk with God, good for you and, and go for it. Uh, but I want to say that when the things we do in church, whatever they may be, start to get in between you and God... That is a problem. When it becomes an addition to God or a mediator with God or an essential thing in your relationship with God, such that if it were taken away, your relationship with God would be ruined and you feel maybe you can't get close to God without that thing, then Paul says it is a problem. It's not just harmless. In fact, he describes human tradition like that as being demonic in origin. According to the elemental spirits of the world, he says, any activity that we do as believers that stands between us and Jesus, something that you feel is fundamentally necessary for your salvation with God, that is not founded upon Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ alone, is in fact against Christ, undermines the cross, and is evil. And so behind all of these rules and these rule makers and these activities and these activists swarming around the church in Colossae and seeking to plunder them and lead them into captivity, teaching the activity of captivity before identity. Behind them are real evil forces, he says. And these evil forces that made you think you weren't good enough for God and told you you had to do everything right to get saved are dealt with. Verse 15. He disarmed. He unclothed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, if you've seen the movie The Pacifier, uh, you'll know it's not a very good movie, to be quite honest with you. Um, But if you've seen it, you'll know, one, it's not a very good movie, and two, uh, you'll know where I'm going. In the movie The Pacifier, uh, a special force operative comes to babysit a family for a week. And uh, the mother is a senator and there's some threats and so uh, someone special comes to look after the whole family. And as the pacifier, the babysitter, uh, gets to to know uh, the family, he starts to have some affection for them. And he realizes that the boy in the house, the teenage boy, is being bullied at school. And he's being picked on, of all people, by a teacher. It's the high school wrestling coach who who constantly seeks to humiliate and show up this lad and embarrass him. And so the babysitter, who is really, you know, a muscle-bound war hero and martial artist, goes off to the school and he confronts the bully. And the bully, the wrestling coach, challenges him to a wrestling match. And the babysitter wrestles with the bully. And in the midst of the whole thing, he grabs the bully's hand and he gets the bully's hand and ties it round his neck and 
pushes the bully's fingers into his own mouth in the signature move known as the pacifier. In the same way, Christ takes this force that exists to put you to shame. That teacher who gets a kick out of showing you up for his own pleasure. And one that would tie you up in activity and guilt and shame without any identity at all. And he disarms and puts to open shame that demonic force. Literally exposes and makes a show of them. He showed them up. And he shows them up on a cross. Oh, they thought they were showing him up. They thought if we humiliate this guy and we beat him up and we nail him to a criminal's cross in his underwear in front of the whole of Jerusalem, and we put a sign above his head and we laugh at him, well then, we'll show him. And yet Christ disarmed and dismantled those demonic forces that said activity saves you by proving through his death and his resurrection that you can rise again as well, entirely by grace. And on the cross, he exposed the enemy. On the cross, he exchanged identities with us. On the cross, he set us free. And in light of the grace of the cross alone, the call to the Colossian church is to grow in him alone. Up. Let's pray. Well, our Heavenly Father, maybe uh, we have come to church with some degree of guilt or shame to do with our sin. Maybe we hear a sermon on activity and we sense that we've done too much wrong or not enough right. Let this be a lesson of identity. We come back again to the start of our identity in you. And as we start to look at maturing in the faith, as we dig deeper into this letter and look at becoming a church that is far more mature and individuals that are far more mature than we've been before, God, would we keep coming back to that nourishing root of grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.